Thank you. <clears throat> Thank you for that uh, beautifully read uh, Bible reading that we've just had. Hearing those uh, dad jokes uh, reminds me of a story I heard about a group of people who went out to a restaurant and when they sat down, the drinks waiter came up to them and asked them what they would like. And one of them said, well, I'd like a Coke. The other said, uh, I'll have a lemon, lime and bitters. Third one said that uh, he'd have a ginger beer. And the fourth one said that he'd like a Southampton. And the drinks waiter said, what's a Southampton? I've never heard of a Southampton. And the guy said, it's a large port. Now, I want to bring a message this morning from the New Testament reading from Luke 12, verse 49 to 59, and I offer this address, this sermon, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In verse 51 of that passage that was just beautifully read to us, Jesus says, Do you think that I've come to bring peace on earth? And his hearers would have said, of course. That's what the Messiah will do. Usher in the era of the kingdom of God that will bring blessing and peace and prosperity. This was the great hope of Jesus' time. And Jesus' followers believed him to be the Messiah. Prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah 9. This is a familiar passage. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders. He will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. In some literature written just before the birth of Jesus, similar expectation. The Messiah will be compassionate to all the nations who reverently stand before him. He will strike the earth with the word of his mouth forever. He will bless the Lord's people with wisdom and happiness. So of course the Messiah would bring peace. But Jesus shatters this confidence and assurance about him bringing peace. He will bring no such thing. No, not peace, he says in verse 51. Nothing but division. And division that reaches right into our homes. He predicts, and he knows already that this is the case, that families will be split right down the middle, divided in their attitude towards him. Three against two, two against three, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. So the most intimate family relationships have already become and will become contested and conflicted. Now, I imagine that Jesus said these things with a very heavy heart indeed. 
He knew the ancient prophecies and hopes of the peace the kingdom of God would bring, but it has not worked out that way, at least not yet. The times in which Jesus is doing his ministry, times of conflict and opposition, are like the contractions that precede the birth of the new age. Now, many of us will know exactly what Jesus is talking about here from bitter experience. Many of us, when we became Christians, found that that decision we had made created instant opposition and strife in our families. And it is especially true when young people become Christian. You become a Christian and people take sides. Now let me give you some examples. I guess many of you have been to Westminster Abbey. <clears throat> and over the main entrance, the western entrance to the Abbey, there are 10 sculptures of 20th century martyrs. And two of those 10 died at the hands of family members, both women. One of them was called Mancha Masmiola, South African lady. She died in 1928. She was a baptismal candidate and she was forced to drink poison by her parents. She was 16 and her mother was subsequently baptised. The second one, her name is Esther John, Pakistani. She died in 1960. She was an evangelist with the Presbyterian Church and she was killed by her Muslim brother. Now, as I was preparing the sermon last week, I spent some time reading through Luke's Gospel to find out how frequently Luke mentions opposition and threats to Jesus. And before we begin a project like this, we know that there will be uncovered a record of strife and opposition and resistance because you cannot explain the death of Jesus without understanding that there must have been a concerted effort to take him by force if necessary and have him put to death. The Lord from heaven comes to earth and is set upon. And from the beginning of his public ministry, there is a crescendo of strife and opposition, virulent opposition, not civil. And I have a page full of references as a result of doing that work on Luke's Gospel. Jesus' very first public appearance in the Gospel in chapter 4, when he reads the servant passage in, from Isaiah 61 in his home synagogue in Nazareth, and his sermon on that passage implies that his fellow townspeople are unbelieving and as a result 
he won't be doing any of the great things in Nazareth that they heard he had been doing elsewhere. Now this results in furious responses from the townsfolk, such that they attempt to throw him off the cliff on which their town was built. Just imagine. In chapter 5, verse 17, he is opposed for forgiving sins. Chapter 5, verse 30. Why, the Pharisees ask, does he eat with sinners and tax collectors? Why, demand the Pharisees, are you doing what is unlawful and healing on the Sabbath in chapter, two, chapter 6, verses 2 and 7? And the upshot of this event is that his enemies now start talking about what they're going to do to Jesus. In fact, in Mark's Gospel, same account makes it clear that they start plotting his murder. In chapter 10, verse 3, Jesus sends out the 72 with the words, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. In chapter 10, verse 25, he's tested by a lawyer. In chapter 11, verse 15, he's accused of using the power of Satan to cast out demons. In chapter 11, verses 37 to 54, he pronounces woes on the Pharisees and teachers of the law. And all these incidents occur before our reading today, halfway through Luke's gospel. Jesus knew by this stage that his ministry was opposed. And from the very beginning, he knew that he was bringing not peace, but a sword. And so we press on in the gospel. Chapter 13, verse 4. The leader of the synagogue is indignant that he heals the bent woman on the Sabbath. Chapter 13, verse 31, Jesus is told that Herod wants to kill him. And in his response to that news, Jesus repeats his intention to go to Jerusalem because he says, that's where prophets die. In 14.1, we are told that he's been carefully watched in the house of a Pharisee. 15.2, the Pharisees are indignant that he welcomes sinners and eats with them. 1947, we're told that in Jerusalem the chief priests and teachers are trying to kill Jesus. Chapter 20, verse 2, they demand that Jesus declare who gave him the authority to do what he is doing in the temple. Chapter 20, verse 19, the chief priests and teachers are looking for a way to kill Jesus and they, of course, will succeed. And even before our passage in chapter 12, Jesus has twice predicted his death in Jerusalem, both times in chapter 9. And he will do so for a third time in chapter 18. And that's why in our passage, Jesus speaks about the baptism that he knows he has to undergo. And by baptism, he's not talking about the sprinkling of water on the candidate's head. 
He's talking about an overwhelming and overpowering experience, a complete overthrow. And it fills all his future as he looks out at what's going to happen. As far as the eye can see, opposition, strife and contention. So all through the gospel, therefore, Jesus has been swimming in shark-infested waters, playing with fire. Indeed, our passage began with these words, I came to cast fire on the earth. This is the fire of divine judgment. You read about it in Malachi 3 verse 2. Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. So, ministry of Jesus, we conclude, is one of conflict and confrontation. Strife and division, as one commentator puts it. His work and his words roused the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and finally the chief priests and the temple establishment, the community leaders, they all resist his teaching, they plot against him, they seek to entrap him and Jesus knows this and he laments it. He knows that he's going to pay for this with his life. Now, friends, why did it have to be this way? We know from reading Josephus and other contemporary historians and commentators that dissenters in Second Temple Judaism were summarily and harshly dealt with by the religious establishment. Jesus was one of many who were put to death as a dissenter. He, he, of course, is the best known of them. And I think it has to do, in large part, with enforcing solidarity, ethnic solidarity, Jewish solidarity. And I understand this because Jews, especially in the land of Israel, find themselves surrounded by non-Jews who in many cases contest their life commitment, can't understand it, mock it, and who without thinking outrage Jewish sensibilities. The Romans are ruling Judea. Do you think they're sensitive? A descendant of Herod the Great, a semi-Jew at best, he's ruling Galilee with the permission of the Romans. Do you think he's sensitive? He put John the Baptist to death. It's much to tempt Jews away from life lived under the authority of the law of Moses. In their own ancestral land, Jews find themselves on the back foot politically and socially and religiously. They're under the heel of giants, you might say, Romans and Greeks, and powerful armies march across the land. The life commitment that is distinctive in the life of the faithful Jews is under constant threat 
And there are three key issues. Keeping the Sabbath, observing the food laws and maintaining control of the temple. And they are matters that keep getting raised in the opposition to Jesus. So let me comment briefly on these three. Firstly, keeping the Sabbath. It's a distinctive ethnic marker. No Roman and no Greek kept the Sabbath. There were civic holy days for Jews and Greek, for Romans and Greeks, religious holidays. But for the Jews to take one day off in seven seemed like sheer laziness, and they said so. But for the Jew, it was a mark of their status as God's special people. You would never give that up lightly. And there were generations of teachers who debated about how one might keep this law. And to go against how the great teachers said the Sabbath had to be kept was to invite disaster. And that's what happens. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. He does good. And doing good, he insists, is demanded by God. Doing good has a greater and higher priority than keeping the Sabbath as the teachers said it had to be kept. Second one, keeping the food laws. Another touchstone for confrontation in the ministry of Jesus. Now, for faithful Jews, keeping the Mosaic food laws kept the people separate from non-Jews. Jews had scruples about what to eat that non-Jews didn't have. You can read about the system in Leviticus chapter 11, and it's designed, in my view, to keep Israel maintaining its separateness, its ethnic identity and its ethnic separateness. No other nation was this scrupulous. By the time of Jesus, it was a system designed to restrict and regulate social connections, especially around the table between Jews and non-Jews. And although we assume that Jesus eats nothing unclean and observes the Mosaic law, as it is found in Leviticus 11, we see on a number of occasions that Jesus eats with tax collectors and sinners and he does so with unwashed hands. Got nothing to do with hygiene. He's, but he's not observing the proprieties devised by the teachers of the law. Jesus thinks it's far more important to celebrate the kingdom of God around his table and washing hands and fencing off his table to the unworthy are not proper concerns now that the kingdom of God is being inaugurated and sinners are being offered and are receiving forgiveness of their sins and peace with God. The third issue, maintaining careful control of the temple. Here is another contested area of Jewish life that we encounter when Jesus arrives in the holy city. The first thing he does, as we all know, is to cleanse the temple. He removes violently 
the money changers and the sellers of animals and then teaches the crowds in it. And by this act, he directly challenges the authority of the chief priests who believe themselves entitled to regulate the house of God and to facilitate the offering of sacrifice. But Jesus says, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he appears to think that offering sacrifice is not a big deal. That the existence of a priesthood mediating between the people and God is not a necessary requirement for all time. What matters, as far as Jesus is concerned, is that people are taught when they come to the temple that they should come to pray, not to be relieved of their hard-earned cash in dodgy transactions overseen by the priestly caste for the sale of sacrificial animals. So, to question the teachers of the law on these matters, food laws, Sabbath, temple, was to invite the charge that you were undermining Jewish ethnic and religious solidarity. And this in an era when the Jewish identity was under extreme threat. Jews run the risk of being absorbed into the great unwashed, as we might say, and of losing their distinctive ethnic separateness, of being found like all the other nations, not faithful anymore, but indistinguishable. That's what's at stake, as far as the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the temple establishment is concerned. So these matters explain, to a large extent, why Jesus' ministry was opposed and conflicted. At a time when Jews were being exhorted to maintain ethnic boundaries and solidarity, Jesus is challenging them. And he's doing so in the name of the dawning and the inbreaking of the kingdom of God and against the teachers of the law who think that nothing important is happening at all. So back to our passage. <clears throat> Jesus now turns to the crowd in verses 54 and verse 60. And he takes us to an issue which we've highlighted in previous sermons. Time is running out for Jesus' contemporaries. The kingdom of God has been inaugurated. The agent of the kingdom, the Messiah, the servant of God, has already come <clears throat> and watchfulness is the key. Action, decisive action is needed. And he says to those listening to the crowds, you look at the sky and you can predict what is going to happen. You see the clouds rising in the west and you say it's going to rain. You get up in the morning and there's a hot wind from the south blowing and you say it's going to be a scorcher. But these same predictors cannot read the signs of what is happening in front of them. 
Here is the Son of Man. They have seen the signs and the miracles of the inbreaking kingdom of God. They hear the teaching of Jesus. People ought to be busting themselves to make the needed adjustments to life in the light of the imminent establishment of the kingdom in all its fullness. But are they doing it? No, says Jesus, you're not. Life goes on as it always has. Everyone is a spectator, doing nothing. And then he asks the crowds in verse 57, why aren't you judging for yourselves what is right? Imagine, he says, that you're being hauled off to court by your accuser. Wouldn't it make sense to come to a settlement, settlement while you're on the way? If you don't, you run the risk of being totally undone by the, in the judicial system, put in jail until the debt has been paid in full. You, says Jesus, are at risk of standing before the judge of heaven and earth to give an account. You have a small closing window of opportunity to seek his mercy and his grace. Can't you even act out of self-interest, says Jesus. Well, let's conclude. Now, our generation is in even more danger than Jesus' contemporaries. We, on the other hand, we have read the signs. We've made our peace with God. We've accepted the gift of grace, of forgiveness, of a right relationship with God. But time is passing. The clock is ticking. Already 2,000 years have gone by and the kingdom has not yet arrived in all its fullness and we know that time is running out, stretched to breaking point. Will the kingdom arrive today? Maybe. One day we know it will. And when it does, it will bring with it all the peace and justice the prophets promised and for which Jesus here has hoped. But it will also bring a shattering overthrow of those who have failed to act. But in the meantime, while the clock runs down, for many of us, life will be filled with division and conflict and strife, and that will be most keenly felt in family life. And for many of us, our life will be one in which peace is a rare commodity indeed. And if our life is not like that, and we're relaxed and comfortable, then how blessed are we? So spare a thought for the many in our world and in our church who read Luke 12, 49 to 59 today as an exact mirror of their Christian experience. Remember 
the confessors and the martyrs. Remember those whose life reflects the pain and lamentation of Christ himself. Peace on earth? No, fire. Division? Nothing but division, as far as the eye can see. <laughs>